Welcome to the 7th Art Podcast. My name is Christopher Heron, and the 7th Art is a podcast and video magazine about cinema, and I'm joined with uh, the 7th Art's uh, one of three producers, including myself, Brian Robertson. Hi, Chris. We're here today to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers, contemporary filmmakers, yeah. Nicholas Pareda. He's a Mexican-Canadian filmmaker. I, I want to take claim for him as a Canadian filmmaker because uh, he's amazing, yeah. and I think that Canada needs more amazing yeah, yeah. filmmakers. But um, obviously, uh, all of his films up to his uh, one that he's working on right now were shot in Mexico. Right. So, uh, he's And that was because, what, uh, well, funding the, bodies? and No, I mean, he gets funding here in, in Canada. I think that it's just the, the subject matter. I know that they're... The actors he consistently works with um, are based out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's part of the story in uh, Juntos, uh, mm-hmm. especially in, in everything, but I think that's a good example of it. We sat down with Nico um, in the summer of 2012 um, when Greatest Hits was about to come out in Toronto. Um, Greatest Hits was his most recent film at that point, right. uh, and I think one of his biggest, one that really kind of broke through. Uh, played at Locarno. And at that time, he was getting a retrospective at TIFF as well. Right? He was about to. It was coming yeah, that. kind of yeah. insane for, because Nico is, how old is Nico? Like, uh, in his He's early young. 30s. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, our, our friend Brad Dean was is instrumental in organizing that. Uh, great retrospective. He's had a retrospective in Harvard. He's been honored. And I think he was heading out to to Poland for for uh, uh, I think maybe a retrospective there and uh, shortly after this this interview that we recorded I also did an interview with him and uh, 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 Kaz from MDFF mm-hmm. uh, director of Tower who uh, we t- uh, the three of us chatted for um, Cinemascope right well the two of them did I, I prompted you, them yeah, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that was being published in Cinemascope I think contributes to this growing attention he was receiving at for that sure. point um, he, uh, he had a film that just played this year in Berlin after the interview was uh, was recorded. It was a collaboration he did with, uh, with a Danish filmmaker, Jacob Schulsinger, which I have not seen yet. But uh, so that's just a little context of when this interview happened. Uh, mm-hmm. What was really exciting about this interview, apart from the fact that, that Nico's films are all really great and it was a thrill to talk about them, was that it was kind of maybe at that point the most emblematic of what we wanted to do with the seventh art, which is to say, have a few drinks, yeah, get yeah. get Nico, in. Yeah, exactly. Nico came through, and um, um, I think it was Al at Getwell just started pouring us beers, and uh, Nico, you know, hammered down two, <laughs> two or three pints, and it was just got. Really yeah, usually good. I'm the one that is. It's hammering things down. It's nice to have. Yeah. A, a co-patriot, uh, yeah. and uh, we. Um, we, we discussed every single one of his films, uh, which is a great thrill because I, I do truly believe that they're all all worth um, worth watching. We started uh, straight from his, his first film um, through to Greatest Hits, which was mm-hmm. new at the time. Um, and I think, I think you touch on uh, the film that's soon to come out. Uh, as of right now, he's shooting in Toronto, right? Or he, are they just finishing up or what's, what's going on with that? I'm not sure where that's where that is right now. It hasn't come out yet. I think that the, they're still they're they're looking into what the form is going to be. But it, the story generally concerns uh, Hungarian immigrants in Toronto's Parkdale, Parkdale neighborhood, community, yeah. yeah, where where Brian lives right now. Yeah, yeah, ghetto. <laughs> no, it's a it's a really nice community. But um, 
um, it, it has a reputation for being a little, um, what would you say? Anyway, this is a, a, a favorite interview of mine, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks. One thing I was wondering for a filmmaker that's like relatively young like you is uh, how your your work tends to be seen as a as all of it in like a, a retrospective almost. And and what's interesting to me about that is that there's always like an accompanying like critical analysis. And I'm wondering how you react to kind of everything being seen as a piece and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of analysis or even seeing the films with big gaps between them, the way they're kind of made. I mean, they're actually made quite one after the it's other, true, yeah. so, because I've shot most of the films without taking too much time in between. And because all of them, I mean, not all of them, but most of them are with the same actors, and the same actors playing similar characters. So in, in a way, it feels natural that the films will be seen together and talked about them like together almost as a one continuous type of work and I, I think it's it's nice for me in a way it's I, I see it in a similar way that uh, people like if it was an exhibit it would make sense like an art gallery or something it would make sense to play all of them together because they relate to each other it's like the same sort of world the same type of uh, it's a kind of research that I'm doing and also not not just with the actors and the characters and the stories but like formally and the the sort of things that I'm trying to 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 play with like the um, like there's many formal games throughout the films that at first I didn't have them and slowly I started sort of developing uh, kind of a, an interest for like I, I call I think they're so games and I think they repeat themselves and they change uh, throughout most of my films and so in a way they all are talking to each other in terms of the characters and the stories but also in terms of how they're formally made so for me it's actually a lot nicer to present the films together than to present them individually and to and to get them and, and when people write about them in, in relation to each other it makes a lot more sense to me as well. I think they sort of they become more interesting, at least the films. I, I mean, I have problems with all my films. I, I don't think like any of the films really work well alone. But all of them together, there is like a, a little bit of you know, in each one, there is a little bit that works quite well, I think. And then, so if you just focus on that, there's something interesting going on. Is that a benefit of kind of having them all, almost all of them together on movie as like a platform to? I had no, actually, like the movie thing, I had no idea that it oh, even really? was there. Like, a friend emailed me like two weeks ago, and he was like, "Oh, like you know, your movies have been featured there," and I, nobody had told me. And I emailed the sales agent to ask him <laughs> what the hell is this, and he didn't email me back. So I didn't even know <laughs> why they're in movie or anything. Well, there's like a real pomp and circumstance too. It's like one year only. And they and they have their own special page and yeah, but I I don't I, I still don't know how <laughs> what that's about. <laughs> Outside of kind of the the references that exist between them and the intertext, is there 
is there something about the themes that also is conveyed? Because a lot of people, when they write about them, tend to talk also about uh, the location and maybe even a kind of sense of from the actors that are the, the two actors that are repeated, uh, kind of there's a community almost that. It's hard to say. Like I was not thinking about it like um, consciously when I made the films, so it's it's almost like a reading of it that I have as well. Like when I look at them, I see sort of certain um, connections that I didn't think about. It was it's a lot more organic than it seems. It's not like I set out to do this type of work. It just sort of happened uh, a little bit by chance. I met this this theater group in Mexico that that. Uh, I find their work incredibly interesting and I think they're good actors but uh, I felt like I could work with them constantly in my, with my own ideas but they understand what I'm what I'm trying to do and I, I really appreciate what they do and the main person in that theater group is this guy Gavino Rodriguez who's the act, main actor in many of my films and he is a bit of He's almost like an assistant director in my films. That he, um, uh, he not assistant director in the sort of like in the film sense of what an assistant director does, but like he he's not yelling around at people and telling them what to do. It's more like a person that tells me ideas and things that work or not don't work, and he helps me out sort of like figuring out things because we, when we shoot, we always come up with new scenes and new. Or, or new spins for for the scenes, and and he's very involved in that process of of coming up with with stuff or or to make things a bit more interesting. And that comes from his he's a theater director, and and I think there's a lot of influence from their world into my films. And they they're always working on a play while I'm making a film with them, and sort of what their the ideas that they're thinking about at the time of making the play somehow permeates as some things that I do in my films and uh, and I think sort of that makes it also the films be even more connected sort of uh, because it's a lot it's it's a big uh, it's it's a lot of people involved not just in making them in, in, in a practical sense but in the ideas that go into them. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if that answered what no, you no, were it's saying. Fair. Uh, and it also draws attention to kind of the there, there's a, a close connection that's made when people write about your work with Mexico, but uh, not as much as played up in the Canadian. And that seems to be more of a funding relationship. With yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah, I mean in Canada because I live here and I've, I'm, I'm Canadian and I've lived here for like ten years. Uh, you know, I get some of the council fundings and. And that, that? That's the main relation. How is that process for uh, for films that are especially not set here? It, it's there's no issue at all because I mean a lot of Canadians make films that make documentaries in whatever country or whatever. So the, I, I mean, for me it's been great the fact that there is not a mandate for Canadian films to be shot within Canadian soil type thing. Because I mean even though my I just shot a movie in Canada, but. But uh, yeah, that's been it's been mainly like a funding thing, and that's why there are co-productions. I also get money from other places, but one of the places I get money is from Canada. How was for, so? Summer of Goliath is one that had a kind of international uh, funding. It was not the first one, but but it was the one that had like 
probably it was the most expensive film. No, well, yeah, more or less. It was closer to one of the most expensive films, and so it had like, you know, the, the Dutch, the Rotterdam Film Festival gives has a funding uh, thing called uh, Hubert Valls Fund. And obviously, because I'm Mexican and I'm Canadian, I'm able to draw from different sources, and I'm lucky that way. And so I can get funding from the Mexican government and also from other places that fund films for third world countries. Because I'm, I'm Mexican and I shoot in Mexico, and then which is the case of the Juarez, and then uh, and then in Canada again, then the council grants. But e e even then, these are like I, I can draw from different resources, but every resource is like you know like ten, twenty thousand dollars and stuff like that. So at the end of the the films are not like expensive in the in the in the film sense. It's just that I get funding from I need to in order to make them and pay people decently I have to draw from many different sources. Yes. And that's why they end up being co productions of three or four four countries, you know? Did the uh, the increased budget on Summer of Goliath kind of influence you in any way on how you were going to approach No, the I mean, what, what changed a bit is that people, is that I pay people better, <laughs> you know, and my, the latest film, the one that hasn't premiered yet, that's premiering Locarno in a month, that one, uh, that one's been the most expensive by far, and I was a bit concerned because it's, it, it's a quite expensive film, it's like a, how much was it? It's like, it's close to $400,000, more or less. But for me, it's a lot more than what I've ever, but the film looks just the same as like any of my other films. And it's just that I paid everybody really like industry standard rates as if they were like, you know, for example, Gavino is an actor that has been in like 20 movies and he's like, you know, he's quite successful as an actor in Mexico. He's quite recognized and and I've worked with him a ton and I had never paid him well because he's a good friend and he's just willing to do things. So I paid him what he's sort of like a Mexican star would make, you know, and uh, the cinematographer had worked for five films and I hadn't paid him well and this time like, I paid him a lot better and stuff, you know, so. So the funding is, at least for that, for, for my films, is, it tends to go just on salaries, not so much on the production of them. So it's, it's the new one's gonna play at La Carna? Yeah, it's in the competition. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not supposed to say that they I guess, in seven days that they have their <laughs> press conference. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Um, we, we mentioned the retrospectives, but the, also, what's the experience like with, with going to these festivals as far as the reception of the films or maybe how they're programmed? I mean, it makes a big difference when you, when you it, it almost doesn't matter what the reception is at the festivals themselves. It's just that because of the way this, this sort of film art industry will operate. If you have a film that wins in Venice, then automatically it gets programmed in other places, even if the programmers might not think it's that great or whatever. Like, you know, you, you find that uh, these sort of A-list festivals or whatever, they, um, they have that power of, of making a film be programmed a lot more or, or, or even sold. Or, and so for me, it's been, you know, it's important in a very practical sense, you know, like, I have kids and stuff, I have to make a living, so, like, <laughs> these festivals help you draw more funding and um, sell your films and stuff like that. I mean, I, some of my films have sold to places that I'm sure the people that program, that, 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 that uh, bu buy the films, 
might not necessarily like them or even maybe haven't even seen them, but just because they won some awards, they, you know, for example, in TV, they have to program so much stuff, you know, they have like hours and hours of, of program they need to have. So what these festivals do is that if you win an award in a big festival, then they might just buy your film automatically for their channel. They pay pretty good and, and it's not, it has nothing to do with the work, you know. It's sad, but that's sort of how it operates. That's really interesting, though, because it all, my first thought is that that would result in more audacious filmmaking or maybe taking more chances because you know that that next film is going to be programmed. Is that...? No, I mean, I think that the, the films that, that you make are independent of all of that. I think they're like... They're, they're totally different worlds and different processes. I mean, I make the film that I want to make, and, and the approach that I have to those films is the same approach I had when I was a student. You know, like, you know, you just make what you want to do and then you just hope for the best. And then once you make the film, then you start sort of the business aspect of it, of trying to sell it and trying to place it in festivals and all that. But I don't think that is related. In fact, I think if, if, you, if you wanted that to be related, then you, you, it would just not work. I don't, know, I don't know why, but I just feel like if you wanted your film to be radical, let's say, to, in order to get into this or that festival, then the film would show it, you know, you would notice that that film was made for something specific and then it just wouldn't work or... In a way, like, films have to be, like, or art in general has to be, like, organic. It has to come from, from something that's outside of the business side of things. And of course, like, as, you know, you're a filmmaker and you're a person and, and you need to make a living and then you need to go into that aspect of things, but I don't think the... The, and also you want the films to be seen by people and you have to do a lot of work in relation to that. But I don't think the, the making of the film and the process of making the film has anything to do with that other side of things, you know? Like if you're audacious and you are radical or whatever, which is also very strange, you know, like a very strange concept because I, I feel like not just with my films but in general with, with artists that are radical, I don't think that any artist is actually radical. It's just that it just comes natural to whatever person to do things in such a manner. To the extent that I don't think that whoever you would call a radical would be capable of doing things otherwise. Like even, like, I mean, the, the, the like, you know, you were talking about, you, you write on Pedro Costa and stuff. I, I think if, for example, if Pedro Costa had to make a, a Hollywood film, he would just fail. He wouldn't just, he won't be able to do it. It's not his style, it's not his thing, it's not what is on his mind. He doesn't, under, he probably doesn't understand the way to make that type of film. So it's not that, it's not that, like, people that are radical in art know exactly how to make a very conventional film and then do a radical film and, and to to deviate from that you know I, don't, I just think it comes natural to do that kind of work as opposed to you know like fighting against something else like it's not because the idea of a radical is that you're going against something and i don't think that's the case in art at least maybe in some art you know and maybe in a different period of time as well but i don't think t today or or at least in, with the filmmakers that I like and with my own work, I don't think you're sort of reacting against something else. I don't think it's a reaction against Hollywood or like some kind of local cinema or commercial cinema or whatever it is. I think it's a mo much more natural, organic process. 
So what was the drive for uh, Where Are There Stories? What, what was your headspace, I guess, heading into to making that? It's really hard to say. I mean, because it was my first film, it was a bit more... It's difficult to describe. I remember I was talking to recently to Gavino, the actor of my films, to, about this, and um, he mentioned that Where There's Stories, a film that it's that feels and like uh, like a teenager that that's a, like let's have punk. That's a teenager that everything is perfect. Like the hair is like exactly like the Mohawk doesn't have a hair falling out. Like the their whole dress is like totally perfect. In that, and then that same punk you know, 20 years later, you know, maybe the pants don't fit exactly the scene or maybe the hair is not exactly gelled properly, but it's something else. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's something that happened with that film, that where the story is a film that is, you know, I set up some rules for myself, which was an important thing to do in order to understand what I was trying to make. And, uh, and so, you know, like the single take long, uh, not moving the camera, hardly any editing within sequence. All of all of those things were were there were so many rules to make that film that the 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 product is a, a film that is very sort of contained in a box that you could understand, you can really define it. It's, it's, in a way, it's a it's a it's a very it's a film that's very easy to talk about because it's so. So it's, a, it's so square, like, you know, the, I, I hardly deviated from, I hardly deviated from what I had uh, uh, conceived, you know, I was, I was not there to make a, an experiment, let's say, it was very sort of contained, and after making that film, I was, I sort of liked the, the product, but I didn't like the process, the process was so, uh, uh, contained in a way. I didn't let myself sort of think about things, and, and because it was my first film, I was I was worried about it, you know. And also, had written the film. I, I did a, a master's at York here at, at, in Toronto, and uh, and I, had, I took some, a screenwriting class where I wrote the screenplay for Where the Stories. And it was a feature screenwriting class, and you were supposed to write a, a feature screenwriting, uh, a feature screenplay in a very particular way. And my film didn't fit that in many ways. So my original feature screenplay was 17 pages, which was very difficult to sell to the, you know to the class and stuff. And I was sort of worried that it was I was not sort of like thinking this is a feature and fuck you. It was more like. They told me this is not a feature; it's very short, and I—it's not like I believed it, but I was very unsure about whether that would be a feature. So I wrote a lot more. I ended up writing another like 25 pages, so it ended up being closer to 50, 45, 50 pages, and uh, and I shot all of it. But then when I edited, I realized all of those extra pages that I had written were crap, and I just wrote them to to make a you know thicker screenplay, not to make a better film, you know. So I had to edit it all out. It was like a long process, and so, but it was very academic in a way. Like everything, the shooting, the acting, the directing, the and the screenwriting of it was very sort of contained. And I was worried about making it work, you know. So it was probably the most difficult film to make because of that. And uh, 
and I don't remember what I was thinking when I was <laughs> making it, you know, like, because I feel that I'm like a total different person now and a different uh, filmmaker and, and so it's hard to talk about that film in, in relation to what, I, what it was supposed to be, you know. There's still things I like about it and I think it was nice to make a film so contained, but, but I made Juntos, my second film, before I premiered my first film, which was like the best decision I think I've ever t taken, which was I mean, it was not a conscious decision, but it was great to be able to make your second feature before your first film gets ever shown, because then I had no, uh, there was no expectations for what that second film would be. And I made a film with a lot less money, it cost me like $500 to make a feature, with, and I made it in my, friend apartment, my friend's apartment with his best friends, and just, uh, improvising a lot the acting is like radically different from my first film and it was like sort of the, the, that's where the whole idea of like researching a, a very spontaneous mode of filmmaking that is closer to a documentary within a fiction environment that, that's what where it started and that, that's where the seeds of all of that that uh, that my my later films uh, that, that all of what, what, what is ingrained in my later film started in Juntos in a way, like my second film. My first film I feel is more like a student film in a way. I mean it is my thesis <laughs> film for, for, for my master's degree. Um, it's interesting the story of the uh, adding the dialogue because people tend to notice that there's not a lot of dialogue in, in some of your films. Uh, but with Juntos it seems like there are certain heavy conversation scenes that are like almost set pieces that yeah. are the, uh, the center of that film. I'm thinking of the, the one while the faucet's being fixed and the other mm. with, the, with the, the girl where there's not a lot of dialogue but it's, it is a conversation to some extent. Yeah, because I think the, the thing with actors a lot, like especially trained actors, is that when you let them free, their natural reaction is to talk. I don't understand exactly why. But I mean, I guess because the pressure of the camera is that you cannot just be standing still. If you're if you if you if you're told to do whatever you want, in a sense, the most natural thing when you have a camera and a different person in there is to start talking. And so, in a way, that was something that I drew from. Even though they're professional actors, that's they're first. I mean, first are people, and then they're actors. You know, and so I felt like. I learned a lot from this process of telling two actors, okay, there's this fridge, it's broken, uh, talk about it. And that's it, all the, that's all the instruction you tell them, and then, you know, you disagree with, with, you say it's broken, you say it's not actually broken, it's just that the motor is not sounding as loud as before, that, that's all the direction you give them, and then from that, I, I, I mean, it's a very stupid small experience, but at the same time, it, I, I understood that people need to talk in front of cameras if you give them the chance to like it, it because if it's harder not to talk than to talk in a way and so in when I make films with non non-professional actors and I put them in similar scenarios uh, the outcome is similar like that people have a need to sort of start talking about it and then what I like about making fiction films with non-professional actors and not giving them exact uh, direction is that their natural reaction is to start talking but because they're not professional actors then the natural thing to talk about is their own experience and their own lives 
And so that's when like the documentaries and fictions are blending in a, in a way that I'm interested in is that uh, people start talking about their own lives, but you gave them bef I, I give them before a certain fictional direction. And so the fictional direction plus their, uh, their own life together make for a very rich character. So it's not a documentary in the sense of, of trying to portray someone's actual life, but you take everything from someone's actual life and you put them in a fictional setting, and so you create a, you know, a character that's very rounded in a way. And that's something I found with actors, but like transferring that from actors into non-professionals is a lot nicer in a way. I think it works a lot better with non-professionals in a way. Does that play into maybe some of the intertext that people see between films? I mean, Untos is kind of usually paired with Perpetuum Mobile and how people talk yeah. about those two. I mean, the, those two are more, more talked um, as a pair also because not only is the same actors in it, and not only is like the, the guy that has a girlfriend is, this, is the same couple in the other film, but there's a moment where um, where one of the actors gives a kind of summary of the second part of Juntos and like in a five minute scene he talks about like half an hour of the other film and like does the whole summary. And I think there is, those two films are very sort of connected. I mean, what happens a lot, I was editing Juntos while I was writing Perpetuum. So like when, when you work in that way, it's very difficult to be have more distance and to make work that is radically different, you know. So. so you have like the three layers. You have kind of the actor's own individual experiences coming through. You have the film, like the, the recording of film, it, yeah. and then you have um, just the the two in dialogue with one another. Yeah, like the, the lost dog. And is that is that maybe I guess why watching them together, uh, as you said, the gallery setting kind of allows these to become more clear. Yeah, in a way, like I think th that that way, like if you watch stuff together, like these films, and particularly Juntos and Perpetuum, but even like Verano Goliath, you start understanding what I'm going for. It's not so subtle anymore, and it's a bit more interesting to me as well. Like everything, when films start talk talking to each other, I think uh, that's when you see what my interests are and I think there's something to that. I mean, at least I think that's the most important things that I've done are within things that you might not notice if you only see one of the films. There are also two films that um, are place the comedy more at the forefront, um, especially Perpetual Mobile, kind of, uh, at least a lot of people respond that way. That's because the main characters were Gavino and Paco, and Paco is the, the other mover, and they're best friends in real life, and they work together. They're, they're, they're in the same theater company, and so it was sort of difficult not to. Because even though they're professional actors, I work with them as people, and they're good friends of mine. And so I, I don't relate to them as I don't give them the screenplay. They don't memorize lines. It's almost like I let them. I let them sort of live. And I filmed that. And and well, the one nice thing about professional actors over non-professionals is that they don't care that a camera is around. They sort of used to it enough that, and they're used to me enough as a person. They're used to the camera in the professional world that they're able to just sort of like let loose a lot more. 
And so when you put two best friends together, it's very hard not to capture something of their actual relationship. And even though there's a lot of direction in that film, there's a lot of, because the film is, is, is not about their lives in any way. I mean, they, they are not movers. They're not from that social class. They're totally different kind of people. There's something about them that totally comes across, which is also like an emotional um, relationship between those two guys. And I think I didn't set out to do a comedy, you know, but there's many comedy elements because of their relationship. And then Teresa, the mother, the one that plays the mother of Gavin in all the films, she's very funny in a way, like as a person, and she's a comedic actor, you know, even though she plays this bitter woman all the time. She's a, she's a very fun sort of comedic person, and I think that comes through in in how the film feels, not so much in her character, but like in the, the films themselves. They, they also have strong symbols in a way, like there you have the, maybe not a visual symbol, but you have the, the recurring motif of the, the water being too hot um, in Yuntos, but you also have the kind of the moving, the process of moving, which goes from being uh, objects to objects that are stolen to a, a corpse. and, and I don't know, maybe for me, those, those two films struck me as the most symbolic of, of... It's funny because it's not conscious, you know? Yeah. It's not something that I do like... Um, I know what you mean because you know, I know the films very well, but it's not uh, something that, uh, that, I, that I come up with and then I do. I mean, obviously, like the, the hot water thing, it was, I knew it was going to be a comedic element, and I, I, I thought because water is, you know, it's an element, and it would have automatically a, some kind of a symbolic meaning. Also, Mexico City has a, in Mexico, it makes a bit more sense. In Mexico, Mexico City has a particular water problem because it was founded on uh, a lake, and so Mexico City used to be a lake. And then all the water was sucked out of the place, and then it's a very dry city now and has a lot of water problems. So it's very ironic the fact that Mexico City exists as, as it does today. And so I liked an apartment in the middle of Mexico City where people were getting only hot water, <laughs> which I think is something that, that, that relates to the history of the city as well. And it relates to a, to a play of, of these guys, because these guys had, had made a play about the water in Mexico City called uh, the, the Hold Up to the Transparent Water, or something like that, and it was a history of Mexico City through the water. And I had seen that, that play, and I was very impressed by it. And I think Juntos, I don't think they noticed it, but I think Juntos, for me, was in, uh, in many ways based on their play and their ideas of how we can destroy a city by sucking its water <laughs> away, even though it's a city that was founded on a lake. So, so some of those ideas, I think, remain in Juntos, a bit hidden, but they're there. You know? I, I found Perpetual Mobile interesting because it's also, I mean, it's the most obviously urban. A lot of, a lot of the shots are clearly set in the urban space. I'm wondering what your experience was kind of shooting shooting in that area. I mean, I lived in Mexico City like growing up until I was like 19 years old and I go there all the time. So it was very natural to make a, a film in, that the city would show. But I mean, it, it actually doesn't show that much. It's just that the sounds are overwhelming. So like you all the time hear the city. 
but you don't uh, you see it here and there a little bit of cars here and there but there's not that much and it was it's all more natural to me I mean I just made a film in Toronto like you know like last week and it was a bit of it's a bit harder in a way like to shoot in the we shot some stuff and in, in the streets here in, in Roncesvalles and stuff and it just doesn't feel as I don't know why. I mean, maybe the place where you grew up and where you were born, you feel more it's your own, almost like that you own it. And so when I set a tripod on a camera in Mexico City, I feel like it's just normal and nobody should care about it. And I don't feel a bit anxious about, uh, I don't know, the laws about it and getting permits and all of that, because I just feel that my streets, I've lived here all my life and it feels like being at home, you know? A home meaning like your actual house, like setting, you know. And uh, whereas when I'm shooting here, it's a bit, you know, like I don't, I don't want to, to create any problems or to get into trouble for not getting proper permits and stuff like that, you know. So, so it was, it was fairly natural to shoot in the city. It's interesting you mentioned that it's like your physical home because you tend to have compositions around tables inside that seems to like be a, a visual motif that recurs. Yeah, it happens too much. Like, a lot of my films are like all the time, they're sitting somewhere, and my latest film, the one that's screening in Locarno, that one is um, almost every shot they're sitting at a table, and it's just cuts from one table to another table to another table. And I don't know why I keep doing that. I just, just, you know, Many times I think in my life I've had like very interesting conversations over tables in a way like <laughs> whether it's at a bar or like, you know, so I maybe don't need, don't have a need to get out of that space and, and uh, whenever I have like serious conversations with my parents, you know, I sit at a table and we talk about it and about things and so it seems like a good space to, to, to have entire scenes, I don't know. The flip side of that is that I noticed that uh, all of them tend to end outside. Like, they seem to culminate in a kind of natural space. Well, because you have to breathe in a way and like, get out. And then the same thing is the same thing as in like, life when I have conversations at a table. And generally, conversations that don't, are not totally resolved. And you, you cannot, um, and, and in a way, nature helps you resolve a lot of problems. Or, or nature, if it's not nature, it's like the other elements and the outdoors or whatever. So if you're having a, a fight with someone, a, a, an intense conversation or a bar with someone, in the moment that you step out of the bar and you walk into, into the street and you, you know, cars and other people are, or, you, or if you're in a rural area or if you go to a forest or whatever, automatically, you know, there's a different layer that resolves the conversation for you, resolves the, the problem for, it doesn't resolve the actual problem, but it's, in, in your head space, it's, you know, you're somewhere else and it helps you deal with life in a way. Because it, all these conversations in the... I've, I did some conversations sitting on beds, some conversations at tables. Those conversations are things that are almost two monologues of people trying to resolve things but that don't get resolved completely. But when okay. you... Uh, when you take it out of that space, the situation resolves itself without people having to reason and to come to an agreement on things. 
and that's why it's it's an, it's important for me to have those conversations and then take them out to a different whatever it is like the urban space or the rural space or the nature space or whatever you know? Uh, the scenes in, in nature tend to also visually require more decipherment, like either the lighting is low or the action is happening farther away from the camera. I think it's more like a natural thing in that, in that sense, like I, I shoot in a, I shoot without lights and I shoot without like a, a much a crew and stuff and I feel that in a house, the furthest away I can get is like the wall that's like <laughs> very close to the yeah. table because I shoot also very, you know, if it's if I'm shooting a a, a scene in a um, in a house that's a middle class home, then the kitchen is not going to be bigger than like you know a couple of feet, and so the camera cannot be that far away either. Uh, but then you you know I go to you know a forest or whatever, and then you have like all the space in the world, and so. In a way, it's also nice to be to have that freedom to move a bit back and to to be able to see something else. And you know, cinema is also images, and you want uh, those images to be in relate. You know, like to have an analog relationship with the feeling of the actual the, of the characters. So when you're in a tiny kitchen. It's normal that the camera is close to the characters because that's their, their experience. Is that the wall is right here and that the, uh, they're they're close to each other. But then the, when they walk to the forest, everything seems so much uh, wider. And also the problems are easier to resolve because of that. You know, because they're in a different environment. And then there's birds and then and trees and whatever. And and so uh, that's what was important for the end of Perpetuum Mobile to be in, in the forest because they're suddenly not confined to words and to talking because when you're in a kitchen all you have left is or like in a small living room all you have left is words you sit down and there's not nothing to look at you know and so you, you just start talking and trying to resolve the problems and i think this is a, a situation that happens to, to a lot of people you know like i think it's a lot easier to have a fight with your partner at home if you rent like a one-bedroom apartment than to have a fight with them if you're like in the woods hiking because then you have like the the world to look at and to influence you and to if you have an argument you can look around and then you are distracted and you're, you're suddenly in a different place but if you're in the confinements of a small space then automatically all you rely on is is what's alive and the only thing that's alive in that small space is the other human being whereas when you get into a different environment then suddenly the world is alive and you don't need to continue arguing because you can, you know, appreciate the rest of life around you. I don't know. Well, Perpetual Mobile ends with, you got two shots. You have the one where the action is really far away from the camera, and then it concludes with a, a closer shot, but it doesn't seem like, as a viewer, you know more about what's going through the minds of the, the characters. You still seem to have that distance. I think it's the idea in the end of Perpetuum Mobile is that they don't know, you know, like is that they are in the same state, that they've just lived through something that is supposed to change their lives, like that in a more normal narrative, you know, your grandmother dies, she's left alone and she's, she's in the, you know, you discover her two weeks after her death. Uh, in, in, in her bathroom and nobody has taken care of her. So that's supposed to change your life. This is the kind of situations that we're told when if that happens to you, then you'll, you'll have a revelation about what life is about. Especially, the, you know, the mother discovered his own mother, her own mother, sorry, 
in dead in a bathroom because clearly they had a bad relationship and she never visited her. her. She, at the same time during the film, is a, has a bad relationship with her son, who is the only person that would, in any case, take care of her when, when, when she's older. But in a way, at the end of the film, she has this sort of thought that if things don't change, she's going to die the same way as, as her mom died. You know, in a, in, a, in a bathroom, in a house with nobody taking care of, and you know, like many weeks pass before anybody notices that she's dead. But the problem is that she doesn't have the tools to change that. She doesn't know how their relationship could change because his son is a pain in the ass. And so it's not suddenly to become like nice to this to the guy because the guy is an asshole. So how do you like at least to her? And so there is what what I'm interested in at the ending is that it's not a non-resolution. It's just that they, the characters themselves don't know where, where, where to move like, and what to do in order for them not to live the same fate of the woman they just buried in the middle of nowhere. And that's what interests me, that, that what defines the relationships is not this greater-than-life things, but they know that they don't know how to change things because their every day is a pain in the ass, or their every day if it's not pain, yes, every day is, is something which is going to lead to that. In a way, a lot of the films I've made are about the everyday and the quotidian and, the, uh, and how that everyday is what defines human life. It's not so important, this very greater life situations. It's not those, this idea that this, this, this saying of the life-changing moment I don't think it exists for the majority of people. Even if something happens in your life that's supposed to be, you know, a, a, a 90 degree turn, I don't think that's actually a true. I, I think it's a lot more common that the everyday life of people define how people think about the world, how people live, and what those lives are going to be like. And those thi and and this few situations that happen a couple of things over the course of, our, of one's life that are supposed to be a radical change. I don't think there are radical changes. They're just good stories to tell or something or like, you know, but at the end of the day, it's more important what you do as, as your daily job or what you do, how you relate to your kids or to your, to your girlfriend or whatever or to your parents in an everyday thing then if you won some award or if you ran a marathon or if you got into the national team of whatever sport, you know, like those things are very small, they're like parties, they're like birthday parties, they're very fun and whatever, but they're not uh, what define a human being. I think what, what defines a human being is sort of like everything else in between. And I've always been concerned in that because I, I don't think people make films about what really defines humanity. I think people make films about those small moments. Like, for example, I mean, everybody's got, like, you know, if you've had a girlfriend, you know that it was great, you know, the moment you met her, you know, you fell in love, and it was all this great moment, and it lasted a couple months, or maybe a year or two. But then if you stayed with them, like, you know, over six, seven, eight, nine years, you realize that what defines your relationship is not those couple first months that you know, you felt all sorts of weird things because you're meeting a new person and they like you and you like them and whatever. 
but it's like then you start living with them and then you start having like small stupid little problems because you don't clean enough or they don't clean enough or or you don't eat the same food and then you want to cook the same food for for both because it's ridiculous to be cooking two separate dishes every day or whatever it is you know that that you will have intentions about that's what defines humanity in a way like if if you have to cook two separate dishes every day for the rest of your life it's a lot stronger than two months of happiness of like meeting someone and being like like deeply in love you know what i mean like, and so i feel that that sort of like more everyday sense of things is what defines almost everything that i do and in perpetual modeling in specific is this this mother and son that realize that even though they've had the revel this possible revelation about this grandmother who is who dies in the middle of, of, of her house after a week and, and they find out weeks after I mean it's a huge deal but they don't know what to do with it because their daily lives um, inform a lot more their lives than this one particular moment you know? on that same track though moving into uh, Interview with the Earth and uh, Summer of Blythe there's almost like an investigative right. so it's just a Three missed calls. I don't know what that happened. No, no, it's no big deal. You're dealing with the everyday life, but there's kind of this narrative bent that necessarily relates it to an investigation. There's both the the interviews that occur with the with, with you essentially, but also determining a kind of truth, like what happened. Yeah, I mean, interview with the Earth was a game, you know, like a game of. Uh, a formal, a cinematic game. What is truth? What is cinema? What is? What are documentaries? Who are? Uh, who are these people? And what are they playing? Are they playing something, or are they representing themselves? And it was more like a. It was like a sort of like a new vein, in like a new, told new investigation into a new world for me. It was the first time I was making a movie with non-actors, all all non-actors, and where I was frustrated at not being able to direct them exactly. And, I, and at that moment I said, no, I'm going to just interview them because people lie really good. People are good at lying. People are not good at acting. <laughs> acting is hard, but lying is easy. Everybody lies in, the, in their lives. And so if you tell someone, okay, I'm going to interview you and I'm going to ask you these particular questions, but at this point, you know, I'm going to ask you this, you answer whatever you want, and then I'm going to ask you this, you keep answering, and then I'm going to ask you this, and then when I ask you that, you answer this. And I tell them exactly what they're supposed to answer. And so that game, I found very rewarding, because it was like directing people, but directing in a very odd sense, because half of the, of the shot would be their actual answers, and half of the shot would be answers that I give them. And so suddenly you have like uh, a, f a, a kind of fake, uh, not mockumentary, mockumentary is a terrible term, <laughs> but like there's, you know, you have these answers from the director, which is what I liked. Suddenly you could get people to give you fictional truth on the spot, as opposed to giving you acting which you always have like to tame and to change and these kids you know when I start interviewing kids and telling them okay now you tell me that this kid died <laughs> and they start laughing I said no no for real you tell me that the kid died 
and they're like, okay, I will, you know, and then they do it, and they're like, fuck, you're so believable, you know, like, you, I totally believe, like, that kid died when you said it, you know, and, and they're not professional actors, you realize that there's a great tool in, in, in that, that interviews have something so, there's something so strong about, about interviewing people, and then, that we believe interviews, I don't know why. And I, I, I think most of the time people are full of shit in interviews. But there's formally, like what we're doing right now, it seems that you, you, there's this convention of believing what people say when, it's in an info, when, when it is in an interview setting. And, uh, and I think it's a, it's a great tool for fiction filmmaking where you can reduce a lot of issues, at least for me, that I don't, I don't like making very complicated shots and very complicated things. I'm not going to shoot a kid falling off a mountain. Like, to make that look good is going to be beyond my skills and beyond the things I, I can do. But when you get an eight-year-old kid saying, like, my best friend fall, fall off that mountain, then it's just as good because it's even worse. It's just like, fuck, man, how can you? And I was up there and I saw him falling down. And when the kid says it, you automatically sort of like believe it and see the kid. And you believe it way more than if you saw it. Because if you've seen it, you've seen a million things. You've seen like Sylvester Stallone dropping some girl, <laughs> you know, in Cliffhanger, and you don't believe it. You know you're, in a, you're watching a movie. But when an eight-year-old kid, you've never seen his face in your life, suddenly tells you, you know, my best friend fell off that mountain, you believe it. And, at the same, and, and in a way, cinema is about believing. Because, that, because if you don't believe that, whatever films you like, you know, you have to believe that Tom Hanks fell in love with whoever else, or else you don't, you're not going to enjoy that film, you know? You have to sort of, to in, in, a some, in some level, you have to believe what's happening in front of you. But if you get a kid telling you straight, my best friend fell off a mountain, suddenly, you believe it in an emotional sense, automatically, I think, and then there's a second sort of like be belief or not belief, like we're just doubting whether the director is, is, is pulling your leg or not about this. And I think that's important, especially in our times, because I feel that documentaries have a very strange, um, um, they're like a, I don't know how to explain this, but like, you know, I don't know if you've met people that suddenly start telling you they know everything about like the banking crisis or everything about, you know, like um, violence in the States or whatever it is because they watched a film. And I find that's very funny because, because as a filmmaker, you know that films are very constructed. You do whatever you want. You can edit films in, the, in whatever w way you want and you can make a documentary about and convince people about the most ridiculous things. I mean, you could grab all of Michael Moore's films and re-edit them and, and make a propaganda film for George Bush or something, you know, and make people actually vote for him if you wanted to. Like, you know, it's not, documentaries are so fiction, you know, like they're so constructed. And I find it strange that there's still this division in a way. Because documentary filmmaking and fiction filmmaking, the only difference is that they have different tools and that there's different conventions, but neither of them have any connection to the truth more than the other. You know, I mean, they're both really connected to truth, but, but they're both interpretations of it. And the only differences between them are 
formal elements, our practical tools. And so when you just grab a couple of tools from that world and stick them in the fiction, then suddenly fiction sort of becomes a lot more real in a way in viewers' minds. And I like that sort of, that, uh, I like when fiction and documentary become hybrid because all the conventions of documentary fall apart. And I think documentary has a stronghold on truth that is totally ridiculous, like right now. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, there, there's one element of, of interview that I want to point out, which is the last shot carrying the boom mic. And there's an element of Summer of Goliath that I find really interesting, which is the out of focus stuff. And I mean, both kind of convey the construction you're talking about. A little about. bit of the same thing. Yeah. But I f there's one critic in particular I'm not going to mention that really loves uh, interviews, really didn't, didn't really like Summer of Goliath. And I, I think that that's maybe why, is because you have that that kind of almost gag at the end where like you kind of can assuage the interviewing process because he's carrying the boom mic. Whereas with Summer of Goliath, it's a little more, I find more interesting because it's more ambivalent. Like it's not as explicit. Yeah, it's funny because in an interview with the Earth, even though it became really explicit, I still, maybe I, I will side more with a critic oh, that really? didn't like <laughs> No, because I feel that in an interview with the Earth, even though it's so explicit, I mean, the main kid who just lied to you throughout the film is carrying a boom pole, which in a, I would have, if I had come up with that idea, if I had come up with the whole screenplay of that film beforehand, I would have thought it would be ridiculous to have the main kid that just lied carrying a boom pole at the end. But we did it in a way that I, I, I came up with the idea of the boom pole right when we were shooting stuff at the cemetery that we ended up not using. And, but when I, when I look at it now, I feel that it feels natural. I don't know how it feels organic that this kid will be carrying a boom pole. Like the way the shot is framed, I think it's mainly that, that you, it's slowly revealed that his, he's carrying this boom pole. And uh, it's very, I, don't, I cannot explain it in words because I, 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 I don't think it would work. Like I don't think when, when I talk about it, I think it sounds a bit ridiculous that a kid will, you know, the main character will carry, be carrying a boom pole. But when you see it, it somehow works. Whereas the thing in Summer of the Life, it feels more calculated, I feel. That the out of focus stuff feels a bit more, I mean, to me, you know, in my experience. And me, it's because I thought of, about the out of focus stuff a lot more than I did about the interview with the Earth thing. Well, I want, I want, to, I want to champion that for a moment. Because <laughs> I really like the out of focus stuff. And the reason yeah. I really like it is because you have the first few instances of it where it seems like, you know, this is conveying a kind of uncertainty about something that you don't know what really happened as a viewer. But then there's the shot where you realize that it's not just everything that's out of focus, it's the stuff that's farther away because in the in the graveyard, the, the closer stuff is sharp. It's, it's sharp, yeah. Yeah, and then it that kind of inverts what you kind of think, oh, maybe this is kind of a rote symbol of like not knowing but then you realize that not everything is unknown because the stuff that's closer is visual yeah it was very important not to shoot it in focus and yeah. then put a filter on top <laughs> yeah it was it was important to say that there is stuff that is still out of focus i mean it's a film about violence and it's up to me and, and it's a film about how mexican society has a culture of violence in many different levels, in a family level, in a more, 
rural general level and then uh, you know the military level and I felt that the general sense of things is that it's everything's hazy you, you don't know what to do about it everything's like there is a non-answer non-possible possibility of moving forward anymore because there is so many deaths every year there's so much and before the, this whole like six years ago started like the whole slaughtering of people you know the, there's been over 60,000 dead people in Mexico over the last six years and but before that we already had like a lot of like other kinds of problems related to uh, generally to you know alcohol abuse and domestic violence and uh, many moral issues relating to the strange Catholicism that exists in Mexico and and the violence that goes with it and, um, and the patriarchal society and so all of that together makes this haze of like not knowing what to do with or where to go what the answer could be and so the film obviously doesn't give an answer of what all of this is about and what the violence that we're living today where it's going to lead or what the solution to, to that violence is but I didn't want to say that there was no answer it's almost like you cannot see but there is a part of the frame that you can can see if you look sharply enough and if you and when the camera moves in certain directions even though it's out of focus we are focusing on something and in a way all of those ideas were related I don't know if it's I don't think it's like something that becomes clear in the film but but from what I just said it was important but also in an aesthetic point of view it was important that that there will be things that will come into focus that will an out-of-focus shot for, for three minutes can get boring, but if the out-of-focus shot suddenly has elements that are in focus, it makes you think, I don't know about what, but it, at least it makes you sort of, it wakes you up, it, it makes you see things, I don't know. There's a, a looseness to Summer of Goliath, I find, like there's a, in the camera. It seems like there's more handheld stuff going on. There's also somewhat of a recurring motif of, of you following characters walking behind them. But some of Goliath has shots where the characters are walking towards the camera, which I also think is an interesting variation. I mean, it was just, I don't know, like, uh, I get tired of doing similar things. Yeah. And I, I think, like, if in one film I, I was able to do something that I think worked, I would rather not repeat it exactly in the same way. I, I'm, I, I would maybe repeat it, but maybe I won't repeat it. I would repeat it from a different angle, I would repeat it with different words or in different circumstances so that it's not actual repetition, there's repetition with difference. So that's the kind of thing I was trying to, it's not, I'm, I'm not trying to do anything, I was just, I was just bored of that and so I would want to do it in a different way that would convey a similar thing as before in other films but that they would also add something new and maybe, you know, just uh, just move forward in a different direction, I guess. I think the ending of that film is really strong narratively and visually, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the ending of Summer of Goliath. That was written in the script, and I was concerned. I, I really wanted the main actress to, to go through this level of, it's almost like a mourning of being left behind and, and self pitying to such degree to become self, uh, I don't know the word in English, like, like, like denigrating yourself to such degree that you become an animal almost. And so, 
so this woman dragging herself in the river and like you know coming out of the mud and making this weird sounds became sort of like a I think it's the closest that I've had in a film to a character arc where someone starts desperate, becomes pities herself and then becomes denigrating herself. And so I needed some visual, I wanted to, all, to have all of this in a visual level. So uh, you know, this very strong, like animalistic sort of kind of character worked pretty good for, for that. And it was great shooting it. You know. I also, I really love uh, all things, and and it seems like I don't know. I, I've maybe seen some people that didn't really like it as much as I did, but I think it's outstanding. Could you talk a bit about like working with the video installation and and digital? That film was was a strange thing, you know, because the the actress of the film, uh, Jesus Rodriguez. She's a very important Mexican actress and political activist, and she had memorized the text of Sor Juana, the Primero Sueño, which is this poem. So Sor Juana was, is the most important Mexican poet, woman Mexican poet, probably ever. And uh, she wrote a poem that's like a book long, you know, it's like, I don't remember how many verses, but like over 500 or 600 verses. And it's a... Uh, it's a poem that no, nobody ever has memorized. And because this woman memorized this poem, which was like a very strange thing to do, because it's a very old Spanish and very difficult. I mean, you saw it probably in English, but the subtitles are still difficult to follow. And to imagine someone memorizing such a poem was already some kind of, it was some kind of like, you know, Guinness Records <laughs> type of achievement, you know, which maybe, but at the same time, it's not just that she memorized the poem, it's that she understands it. And when I was talking to her and she explained me what she got from the poem, I, I thought it was so, so unbelievably interesting that I wanted to do a kind of a registration of the poem. And I told her that we should do something about this. But she had already presented, she, she would present the poem as a play in a in a theater, in a normal theater, and she would just recite the entire poem, and she had different two things that were, were happening all the time, and she would recite the whole thing. And for Mexico, it's a big deal, you know? Like, she's like the... Sor Juana, the woman that wrote this poem, was in the 200 peso bill. Like, she's like a national figure, and she's incredibly important, so... And nobody had ever accomplished this thing, so anyway. Uh, she, she had done this play, so I mentioned to her to just go with a camera. Like, I had like a mini DV camera, I was just going to shoot the play. So that, that didn't get lost. I just felt it was like too important for it to not be in some kind of archive. And so she was interested in it, but then it became like a bigger, that she said like, why won't we hire the people from the university? Because uh, the national, she was presenting the play at the National University. And she said, we can get the National University TV, the Mexican National University, the UNAM, is enormous. Like it has like 300,000 people students and whatever it's like an enormous place it has it has a lot of theaters a lot of it's like a city in itself so they have a tv station and so she hired the tv station to do this and once i got involved and she's like why don't you direct this i'll read this I'll, you know 
I want you to get involved and all these people, all these TV people, and suddenly I was doing a TV show for the, and I was like, fuck man, this sucks. You know, like I have like all these TV cameras, the, the camera guy like hates me because like I'm too young and he's like a lot older than me and, and um, I'm telling him what to do. Like everything was sort of ridiculous and I, and I knew everything was going to be like bad when, when I realized the TV was involved. So I called a couple of friends and I, nobody had time, but I called my friends and I said, like, why don't you come over, shoot us shooting this thing, I'll, I'll give you some direction, like very simple stuff, and we'll make out of something out of that. And the reason I did is because Jesus had told me that one of the main things about the poem is that that knowledge has to come from, in, 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 for Sor Juana, for the poet, one of the main ideas was was that knowledge came from from nothingness, from blank. That you can do all the research in the world, which this poet did, because she was she was a she was a nun that was confined to a convent, but who had access to a very great library, so she could read a lot of stuff. But that at some point you had to sort of do all the research, then try to forget as much as you could about it and start from anew in order to to come up with something that was actually relevant to that research that you read before and that's the way that you can build on re on, pro on on knowledge and so i wanted to make a film that was related to that idea but in cinema so the idea was that if if that's what starts in darkness but so so how can what is cinema and so it's it's darkness, but it's also light, and so a, a light comes up. And then, but it's also the world and characters. And so a woman is lit, which is a woman that's going to read the poem, who's going to explain, read a poem that's about this, about the process of of gaining any kind of knowledge. And then the film became that. It became a deconstruction of what film is about, which is first darkness, then light, then people, then, then words, and then nature, and that's why it ends with rain. And, but for me there's an added value to it, is that because it was so chaotic, this whole thing, it's also about creating something out of nothing, you know, in, in, in that what I had planned couldn't be, could, couldn't be filmed because it started raining when we didn't expect rain. So taking into consideration nature. And so all these elements together from darkness to light to people to nature and to the uncertainty of nature all mixed together into a film became the making off of that TV show which is the film that I made. And so all this, in a way it's the most the sort of academic intellectual film I've ever made but it was done in a very simple manner. All the ideas behind it were very sort of, I was really uh, concerned about what, I, what we were doing, but, but the, in practice, all we were doing was just setting up a tripod <laughs> and shooting us, make a TV show, you know? And like, you know, I, I just told the guys, because it was three different cinematographers, because nobody had time, and it was just, uh, you know, come, shoot very long shots at us, try to, and all people that I trust a lot, that I think have very good eye, on, because I couldn't choose the framing. It was the first film I didn't choose the framing, but the cinematographers were like, you know, doing what they wanted. And, 
and I was very happy actually with the cinematography of it, even though I had nothing to do with it, you know. But I think it's a film that for me works in in that all the ideas I had about what that film could be, the, it became, you know. It's the only film that I've made that is like that, that almost everything I thought that film could be became. And, and also, I, it was a very, you know, a film that was conceived pretty in a, in a very short period of time, but, but in a way it's the most rounded film, that everything that I said to do is, you know? All my other films, I, 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 I tried to do something and it becomes <laughs> like something radically different, you know? But with that film, it was exactly what I wanted to do. And was the, the black and white part of that? Yeah, from the beginning it was black and white because, because it was a bad film. I was about to make a... I, 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 my, dad, my dad has a lot of influence on me and he suggested that the end of the film should be in color because the last verse of, of that poem... Fuck man, I'm too drunk to, <laughs> to remember it's of final poetry, but it was something like... Uh, um, I can't remember, but it was something about the world, because everything about the poem w is about thought. And then it's called, it's called First I Dream, yeah. and it's all about dreaming. And, and in, in, in this dreaming stage, which is related to reasoning, is the understanding of the world. But then suddenly you awake, you, you wake up, and then you realize the world is beyond your thoughts, your dreams, and there's so much more. And um, it's... it's El mundo iluminado y yo despierta. The world illuminated and I'm awake. Meaning, all I thought about is so small. The world is illuminated and I get to see it. Which is so much further wha than what reasoning could ever give you. And, and, and I love that idea that, that humanity is confined to this small headspace, this small reasoning space. But... Uh, but the world is illuminated and enormous, and uh, and that's why it was it was important to, to be in black and white. That films are this big, and the possibilities in the world are, you know, like enormous. And the, and my dad has a more cheesy mind, I thought, in terms of film about like making this like last shot in color, that would be more analogous to the poem itself. But I saw it for like two seconds and I realized it was terrible, so <laughs> I just left it in black and white, you know, but... But you have that last shot, which is of, of the rain, and the, what, are, what are the objects? It was just the shooting, so like it's raining, and because we're, we're lucky enough to be able to shoot the whole second part of the film in the convent where this poet lived. So we're shooting, it's, it's a very sort of like historical documentary in a way, because it's the reading of her poetry in the space where she wrote it. And so we're shooting like the ruins of that space and, uh, and the lights and the camera and all that stuff while we're shooting that, you know? I don't know, it makes sense. Yeah, and um, I mean, you, you're mentioning that last verse, but it seems like so much of the early parts of it are, there's a little bit of the frame that's illuminated and a lot that is dark, and I'm wondering was that a directive at, at any level you had with the cinematographers? No, I mean, the, the thing was that the cinema, I was, I was too concerned of making the TV show, you know, like I'm directing a TV show while I'm directing a making off of the TV show. 
but the film that I'm interested in is a making of, but I have to pretend to be more, not pretend, but I have to be more in practical sense, more interested in the actual TV show. So I was, I mean, all the lights that are going on are for the TV show, you know, and so I'm setting them up, but I don't know what the, what the, what the cinematographer for the making of is doing. I mean, they're almost hired like, oh, you, you go over there and shoot the making of, and I just give them very simple guidelines, and I edit something out of that. And the actual TV show is not that great, you know. <laughs> it's just sort of it, it works in a documentation of the play that she had, in that level. But I feel that the that the making of works in so many more levels. It's like I think all things are is uh, a work of its own. It's not a making of, you know. It's uh, like it stands on its own. You know? And did that lead in in any way to what you're doing now, like? I wish it did more in a way, like because I think there was a very interesting vein of things in that way. But then uh, my wife started shooting documentary, uh, making offs of films now, and I think she's taking over. Sort of, <laughs> we we talk a lot and we discuss a lot, like kind of things that we like a lot of similar. I mean, we sort of grew up cinematically together. I met her like ten years ago when I was an undergrad, and we've talked a lot about films and so. In a way, that vein of things, she's taking over a bit, and she made a, a making off of a, of a friend's film in Mexico, and she's making more making offs now. And I think like th we, I feel involved in that world that that she's doing because uh, we, we, you know, it's like it's part of my work, and in a way that we talk a lot about it. But I feel that there is a lot of work to be done in making offs because they tend to be very uninteresting. But I think there's a whole world behind making off the, 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 that genre that could be a lot more interesting than just documenting the making of a film, but there's so many things that are happening while you make a film that could be related to something that is not in the film, but to something more interesting that, uh, that it's interesting to explore. But in a way, I... I I'm not working with that anymore, and it's just my wife that's working with that stuff. <laughs> so we started with like all the kind of retrospectives, and now it's interesting because what I kind of wanted to get at was that you're still making films, right? Even though these retrospectives are I mean, it's a bit ridiculous to call them that, you know, but it's just like, um, I feel that it's more, it's a strange word to say retrospective yeah. because I'm, I'm not 30 yet. I you know. know. But, like, <laughs> but I think they're more like a... I think it's more that these works belong together, so it makes sense to show them together. And the word that you use <laughs> to show works together of someone, all the works of someone together is retrospective, but I think it's more like um, it's just uh, works that are connected to each other that, that make sense to be shown together. You know? Well, there's also the quality of you representing something, right? Uh, that's something we didn't touch on. I think it has to do a lot more with, with these games that I was talking to about the, in the beginning. You know, like, just sort of like this repetition and difference and rehearsals and... Because the new, f the, the last film I made that I'm premiering Locarno now is called Greatest Hits. And it's about... I should have given it to you, so I'm sorry. I just totally forgot to give it to you. But it's about uh, rehearsing stuff in order to be able to live the future and to... I think a lot of people rehearse what's going to happen in the, in the future, and w w whether it's like a job interview or even like meeting somebody or 
or trying to buy a new house and what, how you're going to go about it or whatever it is, a lot of people I feel rehearse, not full-fledged rehearsal, but maybe in their minds to some extent there's some level of rehearsing. And so I made a film about that and um, in the new movie I just made, I sort of incorporated some level of rehearsals because the, the community I'm, I'm filming with, they're refugees from Hungary living here in Toronto and, and they have all sorts of issues like family back home, issues with like um, having to go to court in order to, to figure out uh, whether they're going to be able to stay or not. And so there's enough things that you could rehearse about it, like going to, to court and rehearsing what the judge is going to say and how you're going to react and how you're going to get refugee status and like everything that you have to, you know, because they're tough, judges are tough, and so they might ask you really difficult questions and try to confuse you about the, you know, the dates and when you came to Canada, when you didn't come to Canada, and what, why did you come to Canada, and this, what happened in this state and what happened in that date, and then and then sort of cross-examine your wife and seeing if everything matches and all that. So people have to, I would expect people to a bit rehearse a bit their story, even though it's their actual story. And I'm not, I, I'm not in any way suggesting they're making up this stuff. It's hard to remember every single date and every single thing that happened in, in detail. And so maybe you, it's a good idea to rehearse these things before you go to court to deal with them. And so I got real couples in real situations that are actually dealing with these things rehearsing that exact thing but on camera and so it made sense to rehearse it for this film and it's connected to my previous films because i do very similar stuff you know so, so the the retrospective continues i guess <laughs> thank you so much all right thank you this to go on thanks uh, thank you <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.